Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored by Kurgo. Kurgo was started by two brothers who loved to hike and travel and wanted their dogs to come along. The first product idea came when the dog slid off the front seat and got tangled in their pedals and nearly caused an accident. So they invented a backseat barrier to keep dogs out of the front seat and they continued into other dog safety and travel products. Kurgo was among the first manufacturers to produce crash-tested dog harnesses that keep your dog safe in the event of an accident, and they offer many different in-car safety solutions for your pets, along with harnesses, collars, boots, coats, leashes, and car seat covers. Go to KurgoStore, K-U-R-G-O store.com slash bookriot now and get 30% off your order total. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 80, and we're recording on Thursday, November 20th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you at bookriot.com. It's another After Dark. After Dark. After Dark. Um, and uh, next week, we're doing the Holiday Rec Show. Uh, probably too late to get in a rec. This will go up Sunday night, the 23rd, and we're recording on the 24th. I guess. I guess if you get this, if you <laughs> yes, listen to this on Sunday and you get one in, but um, but it's going to be a two-parter. So we're going to uh, just spend so much quality time together right, next week. Probably do what? Probably two and a half hours. We got a lot of questions, a lot of good ones. But next week, and that's going to drop on Wednesday, so our schedule will be a little different. But you'll get two episodes, but it'll come on Wednesday. So ration them out accordingly for your long holiday book buying all, weekend. Yeah. All holiday book gift recommendations all the time next week. So last time we were saying thank you so much for getting us to 200 reviews. We've blown by that. We're on 224 now and that we had made a not so subtle um, plea to try to get to 100 reviews when someone wrote in and said, you jerks, you always forget about Canada. And, uh, you know, apparently, <laughs> apparently there's another... You, you only see the reviews from the country you're in for the for the iTunes store. So there's another 24 there. I'm sure there's other ones all around the world. Thank you, um, Canada. So thank you, Canada. Um, you know, I'm not sure if it still really counts if it's Canadian review, but I guess we'll let this one pass. No, no, no. We're taking it. We're oh, taking yeah, all we're of taking those. It. That's right. Manifest the Cana- Destiny. The Canadian um, reviews were lovely. Oh, they were. They were very nice reviews. But anyway, thank you so much, all of you who have uh, – have thought to review and uh, rate the show and taken the time. Thus endeth the, uh, the the telethon for reviews for 2014. <laughs> I'm sure one day we'll wake up and we'll be close to some other landmark on there and uh, panic and ask you to, to, to saddle up. But for I now, I think we're good. I don't know if it's panic so much as just like the we get a, we get the gimmies. You mean gross narcissism? I was going to say I mean gross narcissism. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, it occurs to me to tell our listeners also that if you're shopping for someone who likes comics or who wants to be into comics, Paul Montgomery and Preeti Chibber, who host the Oh Comics podcast for our sister site panels, are doing the same holiday gift book recommendation 
situation. And I believe that they might be on a different schedule than we are. So you can hit them up on mm. Twitter um, at Hey Panels or at Fuzzy Typewriter, which is Paul's handle, or you can shoot them an email at podcast at panels.net um, and they will help you pick out comics for yourself or the people in your life. Yeah, that's right. So do our first sponsor, Random House Audiobooks. Back again. It's a good time of year for audiobooks. A lot of people are going to be driving, stuck in airports, stuck on airplanes, snowed in, cooking, uh, yep. hiding out in the bedroom while your in-laws are in town, um, in a turkey coma, uh, or otherwise uh, needing a little time to yourself. So if you need more motivation for your next workout after you've had a tryptophan overdose, um, <laughs> or, or you're finally finishing up that craft project on a long winter night, uh, need some excitement to your daily commute or your family road trip, you should try audiobooks. We talk about audiobooks all the time. Probably the fastest growing part of the book world right now, growing even faster over the last two years than ebooks on a percentage basis. Mm-hmm. You can listen to your favorite author, newest bestseller, give your routine a fresh new perspective. Someone on Twitter today w- was saying, I don't know how you guys have time for podcasts. Uh, <laughs> and so if you've been listening to podcasts, you clearly have time. And I, you know, made a snide comment, and he's made a snide comment back, and I sort of ended it there. And I was, I walked away kind of fuming, thinking about, but just think of all the time you have in your life, especially if you're a book lover and if you're pressed for time at all, where you don't always have um, the the space and the location to just have put your eyes on a screen or a page, but you do have time in your day where you could be listening to something in your car, mowing the lawn, shoveling snow, I guess as the case may be this time oh. of year. Yeah, one of our uh, one of our listeners yes, commented right. today that he had a couple hours over the weekend shoveling snow, yeah. and so he got some audiobook Robert time Zimmerman, in that way. Robert Zimmerman is, is yes. a great fan of the show, and we appreciate him all the time uh, mentioning the show. Uh, almost every Monday morning, I can see him tweeting that he's getting ready to start the show. It uh, makes me extremely happy. It's but great. Uh, if you're doing a lot of time cooking, playing a video game, if you got if you're stuck watching sports with the family. You know, you're watching the Cowboys mm-hmm. slaughter someone on Thursday next week. Uh, you know, you might give audiobooks a try. So go try audiobooks.com and you can get suggestions for what to listen to based on what you're doing, cooking, gardening. There's something for everyone there. Go to try audiobooks.com, check something out. Thank you them for sponsoring the show. All right. So the big event in American letters. Oh, it was a big event in so many ways. Night. Well, let's start with the top. Let's start with the, where to put the emphasis where it should have been first. Yes. Should we do that? We should. We should totally do that. The winners were, and... Uh, oh, of the National Book Awards. Did we even say what the big event was? I think I, I, may, I may not have, but if I didn't, <laughs> uh, it's the National Book Awards. This is the book award that's given nationally to books. <laughs> I'm purred happily, and purred this happily. is the award uh, yeah, for the books. <laughs> of, the nas- of the nation. <laughs> uh, and the winner... I guess it's always the fiction is kind of the that's the best picture, that's right? That's the one they save till the end, right? Oh, there you go. That's the way they even signal it to that way. Uh, in, in an upset, I would say. Yes. I mean, it's not really an upset because there was five nominees, so it's not. It's like a it surprise. Clear for blue sure. sky. Phil Clay for redeployment, mm-hmm. which is a book you loved. I really loved it, and I will get around to reading it at some point. Um, everyone, I haven't actually seen that many people tweet or mention it, but those who have really have, have thought it was yeah, great. You know. It came out pretty early in the it year, did, it did and that. we were talking when the nominees or when the finalists came out about how books that are released later in the year tend to get more love and attention from book awards, maybe because they're more front of mind. Um, Phil Clay is, he's he's young, he's a Marine veteran. Um, 
he's under 35. Like just earlier this week, he was nominated or he was celebrated mm-hmm. in the five under 35 writers thing. Quite a week for Phil. Yeah, he had a he had a real good week. I think it was a really diverse field of finalists. Like among these five, the books were all yeah, quite different. Very different. I think we were maybe both pulling for Lila and Marilyn Robinson. I, I, pulling for, yeah, that's an <laughs> understatement. It's like Jean um, Valjean for... <laughs> um, Emily St. John Mandel was also up for fiction for Station Eleven, which was also really fantastic. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to see her win. Um, I had only read those three of the what five. What were the other two? I don't have them in front of me. Do you have um, them in front of you? There was uh, An Unnecessary Woman by Robbie oh, Alamadine, yeah, which we talked about. It just came out in paperback mm-hmm. last week. Um, and I don't remember what the fifth uh, one was. You can look it up. We have this thing called the internet up there. If you need we it. do. Uh, so I think it was a surprise. It seemed to me like the inter- the bookish internet was really pulling for 11. Emily yeah. Mandel and Station Eleven. And there was a huge piece earlier this week about um, the marketing of that book and what Knopf did to, to break her out and uh, get... She had three novels published previously, but just wasn't a big name, was coming from a smaller publisher. And so there's been a lot of attention and action around Station Eleven. Um, would have been no surprise for Marilyn Robinson's work to be recognized as well. But I think Phil Clay is very deserving. It's a really excellent mm-hmm. book. And so I was kind of bummed to see all of the like, oh, rats. Yeah, of- that's not, I don't like that. I, I try to avoid that myself. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it, by all accounts, a good book, important topic, important subject material. Um, Marilyn's got one in her belt. Probably probably Station Eleven is sold better than I of those two. Um, I don't know. Maybe I feel like, I don't know. If you had to guess, would you say Lila or uh, Station Eleven is sold more? I would guess Station Eleven. Yeah, me too. Just just anecdotally seeing people mention it and it's got a lot of steam. Though mm-hmm. Marilyn Robinson has her uh, acolytes. And maybe the National Book Award people are just hanging on because they know something that we don't. And like, oh. maybe, maybe, I don't know. This is just my dream now. So, so I'm just going to have a book fantasy that Marilyn Robinson has another Gilead book in her and that it's coming and that she will win the National Book Award the year that she finishes that story. Well, uh, <laughs> just, Gilead won the Pulitzer, right? Mm-hmm. And Home, I think, won the National Book Award, didn't it? Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't. We can I don't look remember. It. I can look it up again. Go Google it if you're. Just, if you think I'm you know, wrong. Let me do some fantasy rationalizing. No, hey, I'm there with you. I'm way out in the head of you. I was already been one. <laughs> but I, regardless, the day I heard that uh, that uh, Lila was coming, I was like fourth. I know we just want more there's no such thing as enough but I think you know huge congratulations to Phil Clay and for readers that either you aren't sure you want to read a novel about war or particularly about the Iraq war these are short stories Um, each one is from a different perspective of someone in the military um, somehow involved in the Iraq war and he just beautifully imagines himself into those different characters lives and experiences and it's thoughtful and parts of it are really difficult to read um but like like you were saying jeff it's an important book Mm -hmm. about an important thing and um a less intimidating place to start with contemporary war literature also which is which i guess both of us would say it's kind of where that's a thing we both follow right between yeah that's 
uh, Matterhorn and Fobbit mm-hmm. and the Yellowbirds and Billy, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. And I yeah. think I'm forgetting another one in there too. The things they carried, but that's not yeah, super contemporary, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah, that's part of our, our like Jeff Becca Venn diagram. Uh, yes. Shared, uh, <laughs> Ongoing concerns. The nonfiction winner, Evan Osnos, for The Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China. I know nothing about this book. Moving on. Uh, poetry, Louise Gluck's uh, Faithful and Virtuous. Nia Gluck is a, I mean, she's got to be up there in the most decorated American poets. Mm-hmm. She's won several of these and several Pulitzer Prizes. And the Young People's Literature Award went to Jacqueline Woodson, Brown Girl Dreaming, which, uh, on the Reading Lives podcast, I've had both Meg Medina and Ashley Ford raved about it. So I've heard, I, I've heard about that. I think I don't. Someone in on one of the last few months roundups for Book Riot picked it as mm-hmm. the best book they've read. And she was for sure the crowd favorite. Yes, yes, and uh, a lot of people pulling pulling for it. Um, apparently, a great book, and those who follow um, young adult literature think it's a landmark work and destined to be. Um, kind of up there. Um, so congratulations to all of those people, uh, Jacqueline Woodson, Louise Gluck, Evan Osnos, and Phil Clay. All right, so we got we did the, we did our due diligence there. I think we did a good job there saying the awards, that's mm-hmm. putting the right. What it's all about. It was a festive awards, night. Yeah, uh, and book awards are supposed to help sell books, or they we hope that they help sell books. And yeah. I bought a new book last night. Oh, so what did you buy? I bought Brown Girl Dreaming. Yeah. After Twitter exploded in, like, I knew people were pulling for Jacqueline. No, there it was like. uh, But when she won, Twitter exploded into like a glorious, beautiful thing. um, And then Daniel Handler, uh, also known as Lemony Snicket, uh, I guess can only say screwed up royally. Is that fair? I think. Yeah. Um, In the. Moments after Jacqueline Woodson won, he was, you know, doing the banter thing, I guess the host is supposed to do, and made what I think we can safely say is at least uh, a... a, He made a racist remark. It's a racist remark. Um, And not the only one that he made No, and so I don't know how to narrate this exactly, but um, basically... And I don't even know what's true here. I mean, this is a lot of this is in, in uh, up in the air. But I, I I know what he's what he said is undeniable. We'll link to the video in the show mm-hmm. notes. But he said that he had told Jackie Woods. She goes by Jackie. Jacqueline is kind and of it's, professional. It seems that they you know they at know, least know each they other, know each other. Uh, on offline, as we say IRL. <laughs> um, and he had said that she'd won, and that he said he said on stage that if she won, he was going to tell this anecdote that she's allergic to watermelon, believe it or not. And if you know anything at all uh, about the the stunning array of racist stereotypes and tropes about black people, like watermelon is like a signifier, right? That's a a charged item. It goes on. He goes on. Goes on about how... uh, right, and says something, he says, like, let that sink into your mind. Let that sink in, right. Um, that this black woman is allergic to watermelon. I, I don't know why and, it's supposed to sink into our mind except get, for our hate brains to yeah, get saturated and, and by it. And then he's going on describing the conversation in which he said to her that he was going to tell this anecdote, and apparently she said to him, well, no, uh, he, he said to her, like, well, well you, you, you should put use that book. story in a book. And she says, back to Handler, no, you write about it. And, and so his response then, which is all in this the video from mm-hmm. 
National Book Awards ceremony is like, well, I'm only writing a story about a black girl who's allergic to watermelon if like Cornell West and Toni Morrison and then uh, like a litany of other prominent black people say that, you know, I'm a good guy and it's yeah. okay. Give him the, the figurative and metaphorical carte blanche um, to say whatever he wants. And then he said something later and I, I had to stop watching the video because apparently I just couldn't take it. And there's something apparently during the poetry finalists <sighs> where he says there's like two, there are, there were two black um, finalists and he said, that's enough for probable cause or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then uh, he, when Sharon Draper was introduced and she's an African-American children's and young adult writer, he made a joke about the Coretta Scott King award, which is given for children's literature by and about African-Americans. So he's three for three uh, yeah. and opportunities to really be a jerk. Uh, and man, he hit all three of those straight out of the park. And I don't know. I mean, it's we, so we, we kind of were talking. So, this is so bad. It's so uncomfortable. It's so bad. And uh, we were sort of talking, you and I were talking sort of to each other and to a range of people this morning uh, about it. And I don't know, really wouldn't know what to say except terrible, terrible job. Um, and uh, the, the thing I keep coming back to, and I was thinking about writing something about it, but maybe I'll just use the opportunity here. It really is kind of a microcosm for of publishing's race problem for, mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. One is that he kind of, he seems to be, and he apologized for it on Twitter today and in any way he should have. And I don't, you know, he's not a clan member or something. I don't, I don't, you know, that's, that's not what we're dealing with here, but that's, I think that's part of the problem is that he kind of knows what's wrong, but still can't help himself. Yeah. Uh, he, go the, ahead. Uh, the video, he looks like he's he's kind, kind of, of delighted yeah. with himself for the thing he's about to say when he tells the watermelon joke. Like he sort of jaunts back out onto the stage and Jackie Woodson has just given this impassioned mm-hmm. speech about the book, how books can change the world and talking to writers and readers that are telling stories that have not been told before from marginalized communities of readers and he kind of like dances back up to the podium. I watched it a couple of times and I'm sure that this was not a remark that he planned ahead of time to make. Uh-huh. I hope at least. I hope that no one Which lesson one might be like, script script your script your business. Right. I really you know, need for to, this situation. I need to believe that nobody who had oversight of his script for the evening approved a joke like this. Um, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, geez. I've just been, the thing that I've sort of been coming back to is, I think there there are like three pieces to think about. And one is that this is an individual who like, we cannot know what Daniel Handler believes in his heart of hearts. We can't. And And he may not himself even know, like that's one of the pernicious problems. But we do know that his behavior last night was racist and Mm -hmm. unacceptable. And it seems that he believes he's on good terms or friendly with Jacqueline Woodson in mm-hmm. some way, but that does not explain the comment, the other comments that he made. Um, well, I even saw... so, Terry Jones <laughs> tweeted today that pro tip, when yeah. your friend wins a National Book Award, do not make a watermelon joke. Right. And that was it's... about as succinct of a like, destruction like as that... I saw. That we need to instruct people in this manner. I know, it's so bad. It's just terrible. Um 
And he, when Handler apologized, he acknowledged like his job as the host is to shine a light on the people whose achievements are being celebrated mm-hmm. and that what he did was not that. Um, right. I am glad that he realizes that. But even if you are good buddies with Jacqueline Woodson, even if you are a white person who is good friends, like who really some of your best friends are black, <laughs> that's not that's not carte blanche to tell jokes that are racist in the same way that you can be a male feminist and that's not carte blanche to tell rape jokes. You, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. I mean, you shouldn't, not, have to, you shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to explain. This is not okay. No, it's just not okay. Um, people were tweeting this morning about the experience of being at the National Book Awards. Um, I saw some people talking about how there were eyebrows raised at their tables that people looked, uh, the people they were with looked extremely uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and that they wondered why there were not more people in the room looking extremely uncomfortable you can hear a little laughter on the video and it's hard to know right I mean, you, we can't know like, it didn't i wouldn't nervous? say it got a laugh if you, you were describing it like yeah. there was laughter but yeah i don't know it's hard it's to not, characterize it's hard to assess that and and the focus was on daniel handler because of this particular behavior in this particular moment but like you were saying it's a it's a microcosm of a problem that publishing has and also it's a a small piece of a very big cultural problem mm-hmm. that we have that he, Daniel Handler was playing to the room that he was in. Right. And publishing is an incredibly white room. 89%. We've talked about that um, before on the show. So it's problematic in the extreme that he thought that joke was ever acceptable. Right. It's problematic in the extreme in what it indicates about publishing that he thought that that room was a room in which it's okay mm-hmm. to make that joke. And I think now the conversation moves or should move to yeah. what are we doing and what can we be doing better? And the first thing is that the National Book Foundation needs to say something. I think um, they have to. I think it's been they now, have to. Like at the time that we're recording this, it's been 24 almost 24 hours. hours. And they've their Twitter a- account was active today, retweeting pictures of people from the awards mm-hmm. and making jokes about when the literati get glitterati. Um, just and just pretending that this didn't happen. Like, you know that somebody at the National Book Foundation had an oh God moment. And like people had a meeting today to try to decide clearly, what to do. Clearly uh, Handler's PR people did because yeah. that was clearly and a crafted. That uh, so far what they've apology. come up with is pretend like it didn't happen. Or maybe they think that they're off the hook because Daniel Handler apologized for his own actions. But it, it may not be their fault that he said it, they might not have known he was going to say it. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, you, look, but like he walks off the stage. I mean, I was thinking about like, if one of our writers, if we had a public place and one of our book riot writers went out on stage and said something like that, or if I walked out and said something like this and you were standing there. Yeah. The I, first thing that happens is the person from the organization needs to say immediately to that person that was not acceptable. And then as quickly as possible, acknowledge publicly that the thing that happened on your watch, whether it's your fault that it happened or not, was terrible. And we're so sorry that our award ceremony that was intended to honor these people yeah. who have contributed to the art was marred by this thing. Yeah, that, that's right. And Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to is even, the thing that's so insidious, especially in this kind of situation where, you know, we're this is a group of mostly educated humanities driven white people in New York and 
Handler makes the joke, and even the way he tells it, I'm especially thinking about his sort of cover-up disclaimer about I'm only writing this story if I get sort of the authorization of these black people. Like he knows enough about it to be, I don't know, conscious of his position somehow, and yet doesn't yet understand the full impact of his own position, Mm -hmm. doesn't understand the gravity, the import, the optics, the language. Yeah. It's, it's a weird kind of snow globe consciousness that can't see itself um, in any kind of meaningful way because he clearly doesn't think he's part of the problem. Right. Right. It's it's always the people who aren't part of the problem that are the worst part of the problem or the, the hardest, the hardest parts of the problem to deal with. Right. Cause they're not part of the problem. Right. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I'm doing my job consciously and I get on the F train every day and I go to work as an editor or a publicist or whatever. And I'm well-meaning and I vote Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't understand it because I'm a racist. And and I'm saying this for myself as well. Like I've said this before on the show in the early days, I think like I think of myself as a, a recovering racist because I grew up as a white kid um, in a racist society and it's just part of my cultural DNA. And I've got to deal with it much like an alcoholic deals with their alcoholism. I've got to be aware of it. Um, I've got to sort of acknowledge that I will never be fully master of it. Um, I've got to acknowledge the consequence it means for my life and the way I see the world and the people around me. Um, and to think for a second that I ever have the kind of mastery that would lend me the authority and the ability to make a race-related joke in a situation like that, I don't think I will ever have. And I, I would be really surprised to see it done well um, in that kind of situation. It reminded me, I remember, do you remember the Academy Awards? I guess it was, was it this year or last year that 12 Years a Slave won the Academy Award? It doesn't really matter. Uh, it was this this year. So Polar and Faye were doing their, their shtick about the, the Academy Award nominees for Best Picture. And they were sort of making fun of each of them as they went. And I the whole time I'm like, oh, Jesus. You're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And they did something really brilliant. And I remember the joke specifically where Polar says, and 12 Years a Slave, which really opened my eyes to, the, you know, to, to really change my mind or something about slavery. And Faye looks at her like, what did you think slavery was? And it was a joke about white racism, right? Like that's mm-hmm. what that joke is about. And I think maybe that's the way you go if you want to touch this with a 10-foot pole, right? Maybe you make it about the the elephant in the room, which is the, the overwhelming whiteness of the situation. Or, or But I don't even, I wouldn't even touch it in that situation. But all I'm trying to say is yeah, I think the confidence few... with it, which he felt like he had the ability mm-hmm. and the right to joke about it there is endemic of so much of the problem because like they don't just, think it's a problem. If he could just get his permission slip signed by Cornell West, it would be fine. Right. Cause I know what I'm doing. Right. It's not that it's not that I have, a, I just, it's not that I need someone to check my work cause I'm fine. I just need a permission slip. Yeah. I don't need someone who knows more about this. Who's more attuned to this sort of thing to look at my language, look at my sensibility, look at my message and give me some feedback on it. It's not, I'm mm-hmm. fine. I'm not a racist. I just need a, the, the, the slip of approval. That's more important right, than my actual message. The, I think the failure of insight or one of the failures of insight here is 
if you're thinking about saying or doing or writing a thing that refers to someone else's suffering or oppression or pain in any way, and you feel like before you can say or do or write that thing, you need to get a pass from yeah. a representative of that group, that's a pretty good signal that you shouldn't say that thing in the first place. Yeah. I, I mean... And he just... That, that part just seems to not have occurred to Daniel Handler. Well, like in, in a way... It makes for a good joke. It can only happen, I think, if it's off the cuff like it was. Like, you know, that's when they th- it's one thing that's, that's a, good, a chestnut of, of PR is that the biggest gap is when someone tells the truth, mm-hmm. right? And he told the truth of himself there. Yeah. Um, and how he understands his relationship mm-hmm. to race and his relationship to storytelling and his relationship to the publishing industry. Uh, and... You know, I you know that's that's the kind of thing that's going to be hard to ferret out. It's going to take some time, uh, years, decades, to get more diverse faces and voices and experiences racially and ethnically, and we haven't even talked about sexual orientation and the full range of what it means to capture the diversity of America. Um, so that we have to think about this and be challenged and careful um, and thoughtful. On an ongoing basis, because left to our own devices, we're not going to do a good job. We're just not going to. Um, and I'm really sad that it caused people pain. I saw a lot of people upset about it mm-hmm. um, this morning. And I'm sure, you know, I saw a couple pieces where people were trying to write about it and trying to get in touch with Jackie Woodson's editors or agents or whatever. And she wasn't commenting. I'm sure she... I only knows, Lord only knows what she is thinking, and I wouldn't want to speculate. Um, but I think there's a chance that uh, she doesn't feel good about it either. Yeah, um, it's, it's so disappointing that this but should, you know, I'm it should also have been a moment surprised. about her. And I'm also the story not is about, surprised. Oh, Are yeah. you surprised? I mean, I mean, I wish that I were more surprised. But you're not like a gog, right? We're not like totally flabbergasted. I will say, yeah, I don't know anything about Daniel Handler. Right. So my reaction has very little to do with who made the remark. But I wish that I were more surprised that a white man who sells millions of books and is in a position of privilege and some kind of power in the book world and was for a night the representative of the National Book Foundation made a remark like this. Yeah, it's it's I mean we the the book world has I mean really there's only one event like this cuz the Pulitzer's are sort of a press release. Yeah. The Nobel Prize is like a Swedish dude in front of a door and like, you know, stop. Like, it's just this, and this is the one and the the National Book Awards have gone out of their way. Oscar night. They've gone out of their way for the last few years to make it like a big deal. Mm -hmm. And you know what? If you want to be a big boy, you got to wear big boy pants. And this is not it. This is not pro material. That's not, that was strictly amateur hour on an open mic night in New Jersey material. I mean, the worst. And still not kind of, okay. No, no, I'm not. But like, even just, but like, just a comic trying to go for something cheap and easy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's where he went. And in that moment, he didn't see her as Jackie Woodson, who'd written a great book. He saw her, saw her, saw her only and primarily as uh, a black stand-in for his own joking 
right? Mm-hmm. And that's and that's where he went. And um, it's it's tough, but I, I can't say that I'm all that surprised. I mean, listeners of this show know that we went through not the same kind of rigmarole, but it comes from the same place when BookCon announced their lineup. And we, you know... And it had like not occurred to them that they had no people no, of color. No, just didn't see it. Or if they did see it, they didn't care. And I honestly don't know which one of those is worse. Um, I don't really believe... And maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's more uh, those two things are wrapped up. They both mm-hmm. don't care, and so they don't see it, and therefore they don't care if they. It's very difficult to to parse, but um, you know, and I and you know, I'm not saying you know. I was thinking about this today. I think I would have if I had been watching it live and listening and heard it in real time and understood, you know, and you know, I hadn't heard it laugh over it and been paying attention. I I like to think, and I do think, I would have my antenna would have gone up, but there's a chance it wouldn't have immediately. I do admit, I do, I do think that for a second that if she, you know, they look like they're sort of having an in joke, I might've just like, Oh, that's something that seems weird, but okay. If there's something there, I think there is a chance. And I, I do want to implement, implicate myself to that degree. Like I'm not hundred percent sure that if I had been there and heard that, that I immediately would have been like writing shit down on my paper or something. You know, I just, mm-hmm. I just don't know. I, I think so, but I, I can't for sure say because again, I, my antenna aren't properly aligned all the way, and I have to manually adjust them all the time to get them pointed in the direction that I, I really do care about. Um, but I don't always hear it uh, in the same kind of way. So I, it's I hate to have to talk about it, but you know what? We care about it, so and, there we go. And I I think it's important that we talk about it, and sometimes it's important that we talk about why we talk about right. it. Um, one of the things that I saw happening inside conversations on Twitter this morning was between several, um, several white people. These happened to all be men in the conversation that I was witnessing who were saying they were really, they were talking to each other and they were talking to a few people of color about how they were troubled by the report that this had happened and how they wanted to say something about it, but they were trying to like get their wording right. Right. And, you know, didn't want to, step on any toes or make anyone upset or figure out what their role in it was. And I appreciate concern. And I certainly appreciate that when something what of this magnitude happens, it can be scary to mm-hmm. add to the public conversation about it because I have hovered over the send button of a post. And so have you, right? you know, wondering what the consequences are, are going to be. Um, but when you have any kind of, platform, when you have any kind of audience and you're in a position of privilege that white people in publishing are in, that is an opportunity. And I think it's an obligation. Right. Yeah. And you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. And I, I, people understand that if you, if you are really genuinely trying, that's pretty visible. And if you're genuinely trying to do your best and you mess up, they're going to tell you that you messed up, but they're also going to give you an opportunity to make it better mm-hmm. or to say, you're right, I messed up. How do I make it better? How right. do I talk about that more effectively? How do I use my position and the privilege that I have more effectively to try to be part of the solution and not part of the problem here? And Well, and, and acknowledge that why, you are part of the problem, yeah. that you are, you can be simultaneously part of the problem and part of the solution because this is how I think about it. If I'm not trying to be part of the solution, I'm part of the problem just because that's the air we breathe. 
Well, that's, you know, that's one of the biggest problems with the fact that the National Book Foundation has been silent right. for 24 that's hours. That's right. It looks when, like when you tacit it looks com- like complicity. Right. Structural support right. for this kind of behavior. Yeah. Structural support for racist statements at one of the biggest nights that our industry has to celebrate the best achievements in our industry that year. Yeah. And, you know, of course, this is what I do immediately when I was, you know, I was mad about it on Twitter and being my snarky self as I do when I get upset about that. So I go back and look at, so they give a medal every year, the distinguish, mm-hmm. the medal for distinguished contribution to American letters, Ursula Quay Le- Ursula K. Le Guin won it this year, gave a great speech, which we should talk about here in a minute. Um, so I went back to look at the uh, historical winners. Oh, no. Um, and one out of the last 14 have gone to a personal caller. Mm. Uh, Maxine Hong Kingston, I think in 2002. So that ain't great, man. I mean, I don't... Uh, that's that's one better than Grumpy Cat, the, the book con people, because what they were 0 for 14. <laughs> Yeah, they were. Oh, they, no, the BookCon was 0 for like 29. Oh, it's 0 for 29. Inclu- and uh, the, the <laughs> and cat, cat abstains. The cat abstains. Um, so that's, you know, that's something they need to look at. Uh, and- they, 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 this is, I think, the third year they've had like a televised host. Mm-hmm. They need to have a person of color up there on the, with a quickness. Uh, you know, and on Twitter, we were, you know, spitballing names and, you know, Diaz would be a good name. Sherman Alexi would be a good name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zadie Smith would be a good name. There's she plenty of good names. There's Tony Morrison of, for everything. Did you yeah. watch Tony Morrison on the Colbert Report? I did. Report? I did. I did. I don't. I don't know if she if she would want to do it or she's her health is good enough to be up there and bouncing up and down. But I, hey, I would be there for that. <laughs> Tony um, Morrison and Colbert together. There's plenty of good names. Um, you don't need a list from us. If you need no. a list from us, resign your job at the National Book Award. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but that's something if they want to make if they want to be committed to it. Um, that this is a great opportunity to show your colors mm-hmm. or your lack thereof, I and, guess. Right. If if this is a thing that you want to be committed to in some way, this is a good time mm-hmm. to say that the We Need Diverse Books Indiegogo campaign is still going. They have met their original $100,000 funding goal. They have 20 days left at the time of this recording. And the next big stretch goal is when they hit $125,000, this, their nonprofit organization for We Need Diverse Books is going to be able to start endowing internships for people of color in publishing. Yeah. See, they know what they're doing, man. They know what they're doing. Like that's where it's got to start. That's, that is where it has to start. Or not start. It started before, but that's, you know, get down in the foundation of the That's a huge piece. A lot of people in publishing jobs, got those jobs initially because they right. had unpaid internships at publishers. Or extremely low-paying internships in right. expensive New York City. Right, and that's the you can only work an unpaid internship if you have money and support from some other source that makes it possible to live in New York and work for no money. Um, and that has fed into... Mm-hmm. That's part of the problem that has contributed to having a largely white workforce in publishing. And We Need Diverse Books is working to change that and working to have more books published by people of color and about people of color and to do educational components. Um, We talk about it all the time, so we clearly think that it's a worthy and important endeavor, but there's still time to contribute to that. Um, If if you have been sitting at home mm-hmm. wondering today how you can be part of trying to solve this problem. could write the National Book Award an email, shoot him a tweet. You know, those are things that matter. Um, yeah. All right, let's do our next sponsor, Kobo. 
episode is brought to you by Kobo. Kobo has over 4 million ebooks in dozens of categories. I wonder how many categories there actually are. I, I'm thinking dozens, I guess, technically. It depends on how super specific dozens, you try to drill I guess down. the word dozens, it at does includes at least two up to infinity categories, right? But at um, what point do you switch from dozens to hundreds? I guess after you have more than a hundred dozen. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess you'd have to some more than 200, right? Because you wouldn't say with oh, over right, 100 right. categories. I don't know. But you could. That sounds impressive. Uh, from book, bestsellers to indie breakouts, world-class. Every every book we've talked about, I bet you could find on Kobo. I know for sure you can find redeployment. I bought Brown Girl Dreaming from Kobo there last night. Um, also not a bad way to support the, 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 the increasing diversity of publishing is to buy books by and about people of color. Anyway, uh, and with the free Kobo app, you can read right in your smartphone, tablet, your computer, switch between devices without losing your spot. If you're like Shinsky and I, and sometimes read on our phone, sometimes read on our iPad, um, you can, it'll keep track of where you are and you log back in, pick up right there. If you want, and this is something else you care about, you can register your account with an independent bookstore who signed up with Kobo so that your purchases through Kobo can Kick some of that money will get get kicked back to an independent bookstore. Doesn't have to be your local bookstore. It could be one that you visit across the country. It could be somewhere else if there's not a local bookstore close to you, but you care about the health and well-being of any independent bookstores, and this is a way you want to support them. You can do that right there. Very good-looking app. Nice, good-looking site to buy books on Kobo. Go to Kobo.com to get started. Thanks to Kobo for sponsoring. The show. Um, I know where I want to go next after that. Do okay, you have a, do take you have something? Me, just take me somewhere good, Jeff. Uh, well, somewhere good. Well, that's that. That takes me away. Uh, well, it's not. It's not bad necessarily. It's interesting. It's <laughs> take interesting. me somewhere that will make me less angry and sad. How about, how about that? a thinkier place? Sure. Kind of. So you and I. I, th- I don't know if we've speculated ourselves on the show about it. We've definitely done it offline or. Off air, mm-hmm. or whatever you call podcasting, if we're on there, <laughs> off the off the binary, uh, audio binary, um, about Penguin Random House's plan for getting into the subscription game. Oh, this is going to make me sad and well, angry. Well, it's not. I mean, uh, is it? Well, you can be however you want. <laughs> I didn't. It doesn't make me angry. I'm more confused and interested myself. But maybe okay. I'll be confused and interested, and then okay, you can I, be I, however. I, I, I'll, I'll go for sad, but not quite angry. So um, this was during the Futurebook conference. I actually I was following the live tweets of this, um, and the CEO of PRH got up there, uh, and his Tom Weldon of Penguin Random House UK, the UK yeah. branch. Um, and I was following it, and he said there was a couple of tweets that people who were live tweeting the event. I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." And he said, "They are not interested in getting into subscription anytime soon. Um, they have two problems: we are not convinced it's what readers want, and they don't understand the business model." Which, if you do have two reasons, those are pretty good ones. Not that I agree with them necessarily, but um, and the other thing he said that I noticed, and I don't think it's in this piece we linked to, we're going to link to in the show notes, about they've got no plans to get into retail, like HarperCollins, as we've yeah. talked about, selling, you know, having a way for readers to buy books directly from them. They, you know, that's not their business. They're into other things, IP and education. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they've got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies, but um, th- that's, I thought that was interesting. This is the biggest trade publisher in the world. In America, it's something like 50 to 60% of all trade sales. Mm-hmm. They're the 800-pound gorilla on the supply when, side. Yeah, we've speculated on multiple occasions that the reason 
Penguin Random House wasn't getting involved with subscription services like Oyster and Scribd must be that they were in-house trying to roll That's the their thing own. we thought would make sense. Like, we're not sort of professional publishing strategists, but we're interested in this. And, like, both yeah, the, of us, I think, says that that's what we would be doing were we um, lamentably and uh, mistakenly charged with running PRH. <laughs> right? It, I mean, I'm not wrong. Yes, I mean, that's kind yeah, of what I mean, we that's thought, what right? we – and we kind of had gotten to that's a good reason to not sign up yes. for someone else's subscription service is if you're going to roll your own and then you get to keep more of the money in house instead of control the titles, giving, the right, terms, instead of giving a chunk of all of it yeah. away to the people who provide the service to the company that provides the service. I'm so like, who are these readers that Tom Weldon is talking to that don't want every book they could possibly get their hands on? Like that this I believe him that he, when he says he, they don't understand the business model. Um, and to be fair, we don't know how many people have subscribed to Oyster. We and don't Scribd. know. We have no the, idea. It's been a long time since either of those companies has released numbers about their usership, mm -hmm. which I think it, you were saying on Twitter, you tend to suspect when there are no numbers released publicly, it's not good news yeah. about what's happening. Not, but not also, universally the case, but that's sort of my... Uh, heuristic for interpreting yeah. no but numbers. It's also really early in the life of ebooks yeah. still and yeah. really early, really, really early in the life of ebook subscriptions. Like audiobooks have been around forever. Audible has been around for what, mm -hmm. like a decade. Yes. And it's really taking off just in the last year or two. So it's way too soon, I think, to decide that the ebook subscription model won't work or is something that readers don't want. And he's talking about it might be great for, um, we think it could work in certain markets with emerging economies where access to books and bookshops is extremely limited. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, like the, the power reader who's going to spend 10 bucks for all you can eat is somebody who wants to get as many books as they can uh -huh. into their brain per month for a relatively low cost. This is not the same customer that goes to their indie bookstore and picks up 10 new books every no, month. No, or, or maybe one book a month, but they pay $28 for uh, Station Eleven and hardback. Right. Right, yeah. It just, this seems incredibly short-sighted. You know, the other thing I was thinking about too is, um, and I, I don't, I wasn't paying attention enough in the early days of Amazon. I wonder if they're afraid of getting burned again, mm. of like, you know, putting um, putting their full faith and credit of their catalog into Oyster and Scribd and I'm sure there's other ones internationally. And then suddenly it becomes a giant beast yeah. that they have to contend with. I mean, I wonder if that's what the, we don't understand the business model is about. My understanding is the business model is not that complicated. You know, if, uh, if a reader gets through X percentage of a book, they get some X percentage of the retail ebook purchase price. Mm -hmm. um, that's how Kindle Unlimited works. And we know a little bit more about the economics there. But I think I've also seen that's basically how Oyster works. If you get something like, I think if a reader gets like 10% through the book, yeah. then the publisher gets 60% right. of the retail price of the ebook. Mm -hmm. That's my memory. Does that sound about right? If, yes. Yeah, that seems right. So, I mean... Now, you may not think that's a great business model for you, but you certainly could understand it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's that's not uh, when, the differential equations or and, anything like that. Uh, Mike Shatskin, who's a publishing pundit. Who I read um, all the time, uh, yeah, by the way, I have to wrote, say. A, wrote a piece this week sort of tearing apart why this statement and decision about business direction are not great um, for Penguin Random House, or he even says are, are wrong. Right. Um, that the reduction of 
not all readers want this, so it's a thing that readers don't want. Mm. It's, it's problematic that there are some readers that want it. You and I are two of those readers mm -hmm. who want subscription services. We pay for them. We use them. Though we I don't right now, I have them. to admit, but that's it. I'm oh, okay. off for a while. But. Um, I'm one of those. I pay for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, but I'm interested yeah. in it, certainly. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, but also, he makes a good distinction uh, Shatskin does that Weldon is saying he doesn't get the business model with subscription services externally, which which makes a kind of sense that if you're selling your ebooks through a subscription service like Oyster or like Scribd, you're giving up chunks of it because that's the right, middleman. Right. But that's not an explanation for why Penguin Random House wouldn't want yes. to roll their own, that they could control it. We are talking about 50 or 60% of the new books in a market every year. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, just enormous backlist, just, right, just like, Titanic backlist. I think it would be a mistake to brand the thing as the penguin random house e-reader. But if you yeah. rolled out an ebook subscription service with a really awesome name, I mean, as great, oyster has shown, it doesn't have to make any sense whatsoever. Really? Right. Like name it something else that has nothing to do with branding the publisher, right? Make it a great, beautiful, functional app, fill it with penguin random house, books and people are going to find things there like i don't yeah. want to have to have a separate app for reading penguin random house and reading everybody else but i am really disappointed to see penguin random house just writing off the subscription model but wholesale. even if prh did the rolled their own and if it was only their titles it would be you know, it'd have about the same coverage that you'd get if Oyster or Scribd had everybody else combined <laughs> i mean that's yeah, what's like, crazy like right and oyster has Harper Collins and uh, some Simon and Schuster some now. Some I think a few McMillan, some Mifflin. They've Chronicle, got some Chronicle, some Melville. Yeah, they're starting to get some frontlist titles. Right. Um, I know an Untamed State by Roxane Gay, which is only like three or four months that's old. On, that's on Oyster now. Yeah, it's on Oyster. Um, well, the the other thing, and that's a good segue to mm. another brilliant idea I had about this. Um, and it, may, it got me think. There's a there's there's quite a few, and I think it's anticipation of Black Friday coming up next week. Uh, there's like big time ebook sales. And oh right, it. right. And there's like two ninety nine for like Wild and Divergent. And this is where I leave you by Jonathan. Yeah, Trapper. Gone Girl, and you know a bunch. And there's some I haven't even discovered yet. So I wonder if what they'd rather do than put their deep backlist on subscription is deeply discount the ebooks. Well, it it seems like that is what they're doing yeah. that um in well, the station 11 is six bucks right now is it or five bucks right now so is broken right. monsters like those are those are big books right now in hardcover and you can get them for five bucks as an ebook. well and uh in the shatskin piece he's saying from that uh, a new york-based executive from penguin random house told him a year ago um that they thought it, it's unwise to offer a service and a pricing plan that is designed to give substantial discounts yeah. to your very best Customers. I think now that I do understand. Now, mm -hmm. there could be readers that want it, but you know what? I also like there to be uh, all you can eat for 10 bucks at all the restaurants I go to. But that doesn't make sense for a lot of the restaurants. <laughs> right. You know, that, that, that right. doesn't work. Like they understand it. And of course, there's a demand for it. Just because there's demand for it doesn't mean you should do it. But, you know. I would, I want to see them at least try it. Like, there's. How much is Netflix streaming? The, what nine ninety nine a month? Nine ninety, so it's the same basically. Nine ninety nine is oyster. Yeah, I was doing. I did the math recently of like my Netflix is nine ninety nine a month, my Spotify is nine ninety nine a month, my Oyster is mm -hmm. nine ninety nine a month, and I buy a few books every month. But like my whole my media life, 
yeah. is, yeah. you know, yeah. pretty uh, much all wrapped up there. I'm actually not as surprised that they're not getting into the subscription game. I mean, I'm a little surprised, but I'm actually more surprised about this pretty definitive statement that we're not getting into direct sales. Mm-hmm. Because even more than I would be interested in subscription models, if I were the surely wrongfully appointed CEO of PRH, the direct sales thing is something I would definitely be interested when, in. Especially if they could do it right. Yes. Like, HarperCollins is trying this. There's some and, things we don't love about that. Right. Yes. And I've said, I think it's not great. Like to, it's direct sales of eBooks only, and you have to read them on a proprietary HarperCollins no, app. No, no, but yes. Not fantastic. Right. They're incentivizing their authors though at HarperCollins um, to promote their books with links to the HarperCollins buy page rather yeah. than the buy pages anywhere else by giving them a 10% extra royalty on all of the books that they sell through the HarperCollins. Here's the thing I don't understand. Like there I just, a, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I just don't think that there are enough readers who find their books that way no. for this to be a worthwhile effort for HarperCollins. And there are definitely not enough readers who want to read in a proprietary app for every publisher uh, Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a way it could be done right because mm-hmm. people – Especially if they're incentivizing authors and, you know, you know, you can imagine a scenario where HarperCollins did an advertising deal with us, for example, that all the HarperCollins titles we linked to on the site would go to their store and we'd get a fee basically for that. They drive people there that way. They get their authors, you know, like you don't have to go much farther than uh, Mr. Gaiman himself, mm-hmm. right? Well, you- to drive people there. They could uh, they could match Amazon prices and still make money because they don't have to pay a middleman. Like, there's a way you can make it interesting. Well, yeah, and so often banner ads for books go either directly to the book's Amazon page. Or the publisher's which, page where you have to click somewhere right, else to I was buy it say, anywhere. We might not like seeing it public people I know that people don't like seeing it when publishers link an advertisement straight to Amazon, but like that is the place that people are most likely to yes. buy their 70% books. Seventy percent of ebooks are Amazon. Online. Right. That those are the numbers. You don't have to like it. That's the truth. Right. Um but the publisher pages are the worst. Oh, they can be so they're it's, almost universally like, terrible. It's like publishers looking for a way to not upset anyone. So they just link to like randomhouse.com slash gone girl and, and then that, you have they have to, to click from fifteen right, retailers. Then you have there. to choose all your retailer options and leave, and that's multiple clicks to buy a thing. And if you've ever tried to sell things online, you know that adding clicks into yes. the process and adding steps. Each, Each step additional of the step funnel, erodes, you lose a massive percentage right, of your it erodes your buyer. sales hugely. So, like, give Amazon the middle finger. Mm-hmm. Roll your own Penguin Random House online retailer. Call it the igloo. Call it whatever yeah. the hell you want to call it. Right. I like the igloo, though. That's cute. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Little penguins. Their subscription service could be called the igloo. That'd be kind of funny, actually. Mm-hmm. Anyway, go for it. <laughs> Uh, well, now I'm just thinking about penguins. Yes. Well, yeah, there but you, you go. But you, and it's a little you do house. that. And then wherever you run banner ads, wherever you put book yes. links, you wherever get your data. authors. Yeah. Wherever your authors promote their stuff, link it right back to the Igloo page. And you can buy your books from the Penguin House, which is what we're calling it now. The Penguin Igloo. But we're, yeah, from the Penguin House Igloo. Uh-huh. And you can read them on your e-reader or you can order a print copy and just... They, I just want to see them try something. You know, like I, I have this huge aversion to any time that someone is like, we don't think that thing will work. <laughs> we just don't think that that's what people right. want. We have no data upon which to base this because we haven't tried it yet. We just have this feeling that it's not right. Yeah. And it'd be one thing if we said, you know, this is the, the certainty. I think that's 
for both of them, the certainty was surprising. When, uh, and this is certainly a personality bias for me. I am programmed to, like, I will much more regret not doing a thing mm. than doing a thing and having the thing go poorly. I would rather, like, have the experience and learn from the thing going poorly. And that's how I'm wired. But I I like to see businesses and I support businesses that do that same thing, that at least take the risk and try to figure out the yeah. new thing and try to figure out the future. And if it blows up in your face, then you acknowledge that you conducted the experiment and it didn't go well. And now you know some things that you didn't know before you tried it. Though I can't imagine too. I mean, there are a lot of virtues of being a giant corporation with that amount of backlist and catalog, but that's a big battleship to turn around. And it could take a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of cost to get something off the ground. And, you know, I disagree with it, but I can certainly understand that point of view. It's like, if you're going to do it, if you're a random house, it's a lot different than if you're going to do it mm-hmm. and be Melville house and sign up with Oyster, you know, and, and, you know, make your, your relatively tiny catalog available in that way. Um, they're the ones that could. So I think you and I especially are like, anxious to like come on little doggy you know like let's go um i will help them stack ice cubes yeah, for their I igloo know. We, we, we will come visit the igloo uh for sure and talk about it but uh, i thought, wear like footy pajamas and a penguin costume yeah you know we're the kind of people now that care about what ceos of publishing companies say how did this happen <laughs> where did we go so terribly wrong I don't know, Jeff. I it's, really It's don't. really hard to say. Uh, all right. Let's this see. is what happens on After Dark Shows. Speaking of Oyster, uh, we yeah. should mention that uh, friend of our online friend, Kevin yes. Nguyen, um, who recently became the editorial director for Oyster, which we just talked about, um, they launched over there. Yes, today? Yesterday? Yes, yeah, they launched it today. Today. Review, the Oyster Review. The Oyster Review. Review to oysterbox.com, which, uh, oysterbooks.com, excuse me, which is kind of, this is a little lit mag. It's a little oyster yeah. branded, curated yeah. literature magazine. Right. And they have, Oyster, pretty much from the get go, has had what I think is great voiced editorial yeah, content. You know, like recommendations have. written by actual people who read books and work for Oyster, who love books. Um, within the app, they have themed lists of recommendations of books around different things, and that changes frequently. And Kevin's uh, big project has been to launch. Uh, this online literary magazine that Oyster is using as a way to, um, you know, when you have great editorial content, it helps people find books to be interested in and it points them to the next great thing to read. And like, that's certainly a philosophy that we believe in because we run a website about helping people. Yeah, it sounds familiar. (laughs) Great things to read. And so uh, I'm not totally clear on if this is intended to expose new people to Oyster or if it's intended more as editorial content for Oyster's users to help them discover new titles. Is it mostly to help you get people or help you keep people? Um, Maybe both. Yeah, Kevin and I um, emailed about it last night and he said that uh, they really see this move as affirming Oyster's commitment to the publishing conversation and that they want to contribute um, to the literary discussion and engage in in dialogue with authors. So it's, I guess well. it's kind of like the old, uh, we don't want to just be, uh, treat books as cans of olive oil, like from You've Got Mail, like we want to add right. something else on top of it as well. Yeah, I think that's, um, a, that's a philosophy that Oyster has kind of sold along with their other points mm-hmm. from, from the get go is that this is not just for people who love books, but that it's um, by people who right. love books and right. that that, right, right, right. Uh, that combination should be 
um, powerful, they hope. So you can check out review.oysterbooks.com. Yeah, you don't have to be a subscribe to look at it. Um, yeah, you can just go online. It's just available to anyone. You can see recommendations. There there was a really great piece there today about the work of Ursula K. Le Guin, yes. um, which was perfectly timed since Boy, she that, that was <laughs> Well, I mean, it's no, that's not, that wasn't a mystery. We knew that right, was going to Right, right, that's true. So that was a smart on probably Kevin's part to, to farm that out and get a piece up by uh, for uh, Le Guin. So um, that's worth... And that's worth, you know, I don't have this on the agenda, but Scribner launched uh, this week. They're doing and they're bringing back their Scribner's magazine, which is another oh, literary I journal. Um, I didn't read the details, but it does seem like, you know, coming out with other publications is that's a thing that's out there, mm-hmm. um, out there in the ether. So, all right, let's do. Boy, oh boy, I don't want to get into that. Uh <laughs> You know the, what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The agenda has yeah, stuff we're off on it this the week. Rails. Let's do, we can do just like a quick news item and then our last sponsor. Yeah, okay. Take me to books. the quick news item. My quick news item this week is a thing that I was particularly excited to read about. Um, Dan Harmon, who created the TV show Community, which I deeply loved and I'm still very much um, sad to see gone. It's going to be on Netflix. There's a new season going to be on Netflix. Did you know that? I thought it was Hulu, but it's like he's not writing. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's the um, diet community. Also, there's a new commercial with Donald, Donald Glover and Danny Putty like walking together on the sidewalk, sort of looking like they're Troy and Abed selves. And I got really excited about it and then realized like it's for video games, which that's great. Mm. And that's probably right in the wheelhouse. But I was like, oh, my God, is there a new TV show with them? And there's not. Um, so that's sad. But Dan Harmon has a collection of essays coming out. In 2016, um, he's not known to be like the friendliest guy. Yeah, so it seems like it, a bit of a prickly pear. Yeah, so some of uh, some of them might be, you know, funny in a poking kind of way. <laughs> uh, but I'm certainly interested in the kind of essays Dan Harmon is going to write, especially up against like what B.J. Novak's short stories and vignettes looked like, and what mm. um, I don't know if we have another like really clean comparison there, but. Uh, I think he's a funny, creative, nerdy guy. Um, I really loved Community. I'm excited uh, for that collection. We have to wait until 2016 for it. Oh, that's just murder. But I'm happy to wait. You know what we don't have to wait for 2016 what? for? Pitch Perfect 2. It oh, comes out in May. I wondered. I hadn't heard you talk about it all day. I wondered if you would come out of your <laughs> uh, coma of joy. I'm still I'm in the coma of joy. Mm, okay. All right. So <laughs> I'm let's, taking that day off. Let's do a sponsor and new books and let's get out of here. All right. Our sponsor uh, again this week, Valiant, the Valiant number one is back. Uh, this is from the award-winning comic book publisher, Valiant Entertainment. And uh, it's a new self-contained comics event by three of the biggest creators in comics today, Jeff Lemire, Matt Kent, and the artist Paolo Rivera, who uh, most recently and notably has done the art for Daredevil at Marvel. Um, Valiant, if you've not heard of it, is a comics company with a universe similar to the Marvel and DC universes. And so the Valiant number one is a new entry point into their award-winning publisher line, publishing line, excuse me. It features nearly every Valiant hero and villain united against a cosmic threat that was 10 years in the making. Mm. Sorry, 10,000 years mm. in the making. <laughs> I was like, wait, 10 years is not very long I mean, in that's, comic that's, book that's, years. That's, you know, that's uh, one Jonathan Franzen like a, novel. Oh, oh. Oh. 
Oh, let's not bring him into this. Uh, So the Valiant uh, will feature all of the Valiant heroes and villains united against this one threat that is 10,000 years in the making. And so it's a perfect place to start with Valiant Comics um, or as a refresher, perhaps, if you're already familiar Mm -hmm. and to help yourself understand and discover why Valiant Comics is one of the most critically acclaimed publishers anywhere in comics uh, that comes out on december 10th the valiant number one which will be the first of four issues um, it'll be in print and online on december 10th and in the meantime you can catch up with valiant's ongoing series exo manowar archer and armstrong quantum and woody rye and more with intro priced 9.99 volume one trade paperback collections uh, so check out valiantuniverse.com for more and thanks to them for sponsoring the show we're winding towards the end of the year and between I'd say, well, really this next week and through the sixth or so of mm-hmm. January, it's gonna mm-hmm. be a quiet period for new books. It is. But you, you, January you found a couple 6th, I did. January sixth is big. That's, though. That, like I am pre excited for that. That there was a big the that first Tuesday after the new year, um last year was a big deal. And mm-hmm. that's not that's not something I knew before I paid attention that that was mm-hmm. it. I knew big fall books and big summer books, but I didn't know there was a big first week of January. Books. I think that's actually, it's relatively new, like yeah. in the last five years or so with gift cards and more with people getting new devices that they want to buy stuff for quickly. Probably also but, you've got six to eight weeks of fallow period. So there's just new titles. They need to start, you know, they've got books yeah. to put out and the, that's the, that's a time to start. Doing book it mail has been really interesting lately since we're in November of 2014, but I'm getting mail for like April mm. of 2015. It's very weird to yeah. start thinking about those, but most of the the big titles have been released already. Um, these came out this week. Um, there were just a couple. Um, the first is Pioneer Girl, the annotated autobiography of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Oh, we talked about was, this before when we yeah, heard about it. Yeah. Edited by Pamela Smith-Hill. Um, it's Exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) The annotated autobiography of Laura Ingalls Wilder. So the real story uh, behind the life uh, that inspired her to write The Little House on the Prairie books, which I think we both loved. Did you talk about that on The Reading Lives with somebody recently? We talked about it with... Was it Rita? I can't remember. It's all... I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. I think Uh, it was. I think it was Rita. I don't remember. Sorry. Yeah, I can picture the boxed set of those that I had <laughs> as a kid sitting on the first grown-up girl mm-hmm. desk I had in my my bedroom. Um, so I'll probably be checking this out. You can ring all your nostalgia bells um, and really learn about Laura Ingalls Wilder um, in that new book. It also seems like this would be a great gift for someone. Um, mm. I can think of a couple people in my life that would probably enjoy reading, you know, you get the author autobiography piece and the great like book about a book thing. Um, Plus it's a book about books that were hugely beloved for multiple generations. (laughs) So uh, maybe you kind of can't go wrong. I'm curious about it. I haven't read that one yet. Um, The other new title this week that caught my eye is called A Modern Marriage by Christy Kidd and Mark Kidd. And it's a memoir um, by a, a married couple whose marriage was on the rocks. And okay, according to the blurbs, I have not read this book yet, but according to the blurbs, they are at a New Year's Eve party and they venture behind a mysterious velvet curtain uh, and discover the swinging lifestyle 
is taking place behind this velvet curtain. That there seems must be, like so melodramatic. It's like, like, really a velvet, like a velvet I curtain. I mean, like the, that's why I'm I'm suspicious of the blurb, not of the fact that this was an experience uh-huh. that they that they had. But um, it seems very like the blurb seems very like a shot from a party. Like, should we go behind that curtain? Yeah, and, see what's and there was there? like a guy with um, like a really hairy chest and a gold chain and like wearing a robe. <laughs> Uh, or like you're at a party and you really have no idea that that's happening behind that curtain. Yes. Um, but they're, they were struggling in their marriage and uh, were exposed to swinging culture and decided to give it a shot and see if their relationship would improve. They'd been married for five years. Um, how would jealousies come into play would this make their relationship stronger or would it make it weaker would it expose points um i am fascinated by other people's marriages mm-hmm. like i i think and just relationships in general you know what happens in in anyone else's relationship is mostly a total mystery to right. people um and that's fascinating that <laughs> most of us like that most people have life defining relationships that are mysterious to everyone else right. um and i i enjoy like you know books about sexuality and culture and so this kind of comes together at a bunch of points that i find to be what's interesting. it called what's the name of it it's called a modern marriage um, uh, and it is out from Gallery, which is a Simon & Schuster imprint. All right. Those are our two books this week, and that's our show. Yes. Uh, let's see. What do we got? What do we usually say? You can find us on Twitter. I'm at the Jeff O'Neill. Uh, O-N- the, the Jeff O'Neill. The Jeff O'Neill. O-N-E-A-L. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-S-K-Y. If you want to shoot us an email, you can do so. Podcast at bookwrite.com. You want to find links to the show notes, the articles and books we talked about in this show. You can go to bookwrite.com slash podcast and find them all there. If you do want to rate us and review us, you can do so on iTunes. We'll be back next week with a special two-part recommendation. Recommendation. Like it's like Fantasia. <laughs> but a recommend- recommendation bonanza, baby. Recommendation. Uh, coming out on Wednesday. Uh, let's see. I was going to say something else. My guest this week, as as this show drops on Reading Lives, will be Sarah McLean, Ooh. the romance novelist that is a huge uh, uh, fan uh, on uh, one of probably Rome, uh, Book Riot's collective favorite romance writer, yes. I would say. Um, she's got a new book, the last in the series she's been writing. Um, I recorded a few weeks ago, and it was great. And she was super game uh, and a lot of fun on that. Oh, so. I'll just plug her new book now because we probably won't do new books oh, on the that's book recommendations yeah. show. I forgot, but her new book is called Never Judge a Lady by Her Cover. And it's the fourth book in the Rules of Scoundrels series, which is set at this awesome glamorous, dark, elegant um, gambling hall in Victorian London. And it's uh, these four people, four mysterious people run the gambling hall and each book focuses on one of them and their romantic pursuits uh, with lots of great Regency, like lords and ladies and marriage matches. And um, if you've not read romance or you're skeptical that romance is a thing that you could like maybe because like me you have a bunch of preconceptions about what romance books are sarah mclean is a great way to bust those the first book in this um series is called a rogue by any other name uh, oh, her writing and is so smart. speaking of things that are coming out next week that we probably won't have time to talk about saga is <gasps> being the first i guess it's the first 18 it's a del- yeah it's a deluxe issues edition are being are being collected in one big hardbound special edition. 
So, A, if you're a Saga fan and want a fetish object like me, that's a good gift. If you are a fan of comics and for some reason beyond the pale of human understanding haven't tried Saga, that's a great place to jump in. C, make a heck of a gift for someone who fits either the A or B category. So that's Saga by Fiona Staples, illustrated by Fiona Staples and uh, written by uh, Brian Vaughn. Excuse me, is that right? Brian Vaughn? And I'm Brian K. Vaughn. Brian K. Vaughn, yeah. yeah, that's right. I sometimes confuse him and Matt Fraction, uh, get them mixed up. So those are our pre-new books for next week. We're stepping on old comics, but you know what? That's, that's, they're, they're new kids. There's overlap. There's new kids just... on the block. They got to deal with it. Uh, so as always, thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, we will hear from you. You will hear from us. <laughs> Something's going to happen next yes. week. There will we'll be, be things coming towards your ear holes from us. <laughs> next week. We're looking forward to that. Thanks again, everybody, and uh, have a good week. Have a good week.